Isaiah chapter 20, if you have not turned there yet, if you'll join me there in Isaiah as we continue through Isaiah's prophecy together in this section we've been looking at the last couple of weeks together. We are going through about a 13-chapter section in the book of Isaiah where God is pronouncing Uh, judgments, if you would, against the different Gentile nations predominantly. We'll see, uh, if we get there this evening to chapter uh, 22, Lord willing, that God actually does insert a little little prophecy in there regarding uh, Judah and Jerusalem speaking to his own people in the midst of this section of communicating to the Gentile nations. Uh, And more than likely, the reason why God inserts that in there, right in between speaking to Ethiopia and Egypt and Tyre and Babylon and these other nations, is perhaps God's way of also indicating to them, you're acting just like all the pagans. In other words, you're my people, but you're acting just like them, so I have a few things to say to you in the midst of his, if you would, kind of judgments that he's been speaking about uh, these other nations. Now, As we've mentioned last time uh, together, particularly, I tried to to drive that point home, part of the reason why God is pronouncing these particular judgments through Isaiah the prophet as he's speaking to the nation of Israel, to both the northern and predominantly uh, to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah as well at this time, really God's pronouncing a lot of these things, not just in one sense to indicate his displeasure and his disapproval of how these other nations are acting and holding them accountable for their own sins, that they will answer to God as their maker as well. But no doubt he's also saying a lot of these things to try and discourage his own people from putting reliance upon these other nations. And that was part of the problem, if you remember. As the Assyrians, kind of the world-dominating force at this time, are going through and they are conquering territory after territory after territory, there was a lot of effort among surrounding people, groups, and nations to try and come together to form alliances, thinking maybe we can stave off the Assyrian power if we come together. And so you had a lot of this uh, making of alliances and treaties, and the nation of Israel and the people of Judah They fell into that same process where they were trying to make arrangements with other nations and they were looking to them and their military powers kind of coming together collectively as a way to be able to survive or not be defeated. And God was basically trying to discourage them from putting their dependence upon the things of the flesh from the strength of man, the ideas of humanity, and looking to the world to solve their problems instead of depending upon him. And that seems to be the continual theme that God keeps trying to hold them accountable for. He's basically saying, look, these nations, they're not going to make it either. Uh, So it's a waste of time to rely upon them. It's a vain effort. And again, we can be guilty of all the same things where we rely upon this and we rely upon that, and we rely upon this idea, or that person, or this effort, or our bank account, or I mean, all all these things, right, that we can turn to as human beings instead of truly depending upon the Lord and looking to him for our stability and for the solution for our problems. So again, this is why it seems the Lord continues to bring these things up. And as we come into chapter 20, we see this same idea coming to pass because God knew, as we saw a little bit in our study last week, that God was trying to caution that his people were turning to Ethiopia, to Egypt, believing somehow they would bail them out, they would be able to get them out of their problems. 
And God here again in chapter 20 is trying to really drive home. That's a waste of time because they're going to fall as well. Uh, and so you're depending upon really sort of a vain resource rather than looking to God is the idea here. But quite interesting, if you read ahead, watch what Isaiah gets for his assignment. Isaiah or chapter 20, verse 1 tells us, in the year that Tartan, now that phrase Tartan is a reference not to a name, but uh, it was a phrase that was used to describe a commander-in-chief, or we might say a general. Uh, so in the year that the general, if you would, uh, of the Assyrians came to Ashdod, and we know Ashdod was one of the chief uh, cities and capital cities, kind of like a pentopolis. There was, remember, five different Philistines, Ashdod and Gaza and Ashkelon. Uh, these are the chief cities of the Philistines. So in the year that this general came to Ashdod, when Sargon was the king of Assyria who had sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. Now, that characterizes for us the time period historically, because we know that event historically happened around 711 B.C. So we're told it was in that time frame that this event was taking place, that at that same time that this world event was happening, when this affair was happening among just the everyday experiences of humanity, when this commander came to the city of Ashdod, Sargon had sent him as the king, go against the people of the Philistines, go up and conquer the territory of Ashdod against the Philistines and take it. It was at that same time that God spoke a word to Isaiah particularly in relationship to what was going to happen, and again, to discourage his people from thinking that somehow they could find help in these other people groups. And look what happened, verse 2, at that same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, saying, go and remove the sackcloth. Now remember, sackcloth was kind of like, a, we might think of like a burlap sack. It was that itchy, scratchy, kind of like camel's hair type clothing that many times was worn as an act of uh, afflicting your body because it was very uncomfortable, itchy, and pinchy. And so many times they would wear it when they were grieving or they were mourning or they were trying to deny their fleshly desires. You would wear sackcloth and afflict yourself. So he tells Isaiah, go, remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet and he did so walking naked and barefoot. And so you want a prophetic ministry. Right? I mean, talk about this guy here gets this word, Isaiah, I have an assignment for you. You've been speaking this and you've been saying that. And this time I want you to act out and actually portray a message to the people now, we go on to see what that message was. Verse 3, then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot, now look at this, for three years, for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, God doesn't mince words, to the shame, the idea is the disgrace, the embarrassment of Egypt. Now, 
what's being described here, again, is God is telling Isaiah, listen, I want you to convey this message, and I want to make sure the point is driven home, and for whatever God's sovereign decision is in this moment, he tells Isaiah the prophet, look, this time I don't want you to just speak my message, I want you to actually spend the next, and notice verse 3 tells us, three years. I want you to spend the next three years clearly acting out this message so the point is driven home. And so what's being described there when Isaiah is told, take off the sackcloth, take off your sandals, and walk naked and barefoot around, the, the picture there, and you could tell by the verses going forward, the context is he's, he's displaying himself like a prisoner of war. Uh, and again, this was a very common practice. You have to understand, we've talked about before, the cruelty of the Assyrians was horrific. I mean, these people mastered barbaric cruelty in the way they treated people. When they would conquer territories, they would skin people alive and hang their skins up on the city wall outside. They would decapitate people, put their skulls you know, outside of the city. They would rip open the wombs of pregnant women I mean, these people were vicious and barbaric, and one of the things that, and there's historical pictures of them leading people away with fish hooks through their, you know, lower chin and up through their mouths, through their nose, through their tongues, and at times even leading them away completely naked, sometimes stripped down to, we might say, like the loincloth, and so... I'll be very candid with you, and you're free to come to your own conviction, certainly on a passage like this. There are some commentators who get so wigged out by the idea of Isaiah walking around in the buff, completely nude, for three years, that they automatically say, well, I mean, that doesn't mean, like, nude naked. What it's referring to is in that, and again, and there's some credence to this, that historically in that day, if you stripped off your outer garment, you wore we might call like you know a nightshirt or your you know your your PJs or your undies or whatever you want to refer to it as. There, that was very disgraceful. Understand, in a culture like that, and that would almost be considered in the mind of the people who were a very modest people in that ancient culture that that was like being naked and utterly ashamed. It would be shameful to walk around exposed in that manner. So some say, look, no, he wasn't completely nude. Here's, the, the, here's what I've learned from the Hebrew. I have no idea. He may have been nude. He may not have been nude. I can tell you this. The same Hebrew word shows up in Genesis chapter 2, the first time that the Bible says that Adam and his Eve, his wife, were naked and unashamed. The very first time the word shows up in the Bible, it's the same Hebrew term. So you can connect the dots with it however you want. Uh, I don't think at the end of the day, that's the main point of the passage. So don't get overly hung up in that idea. What God was clearly doing was telling him to, to portray himself and to walk around in a way like a prisoner of war that was utterly shameful so that every day people would see him and say, what is up with that guy? Why is he dressed like that? What, I mean, or not dressed like that. I mean, what is... Whoa, that's embarrassing. That's disgraceful. And the whole point was you're thinking that these people are going to help you overcome the Assyrians. They're going to be taken away like a bunch of prisoners of war, completely disgraced and humiliated, naked and stripped bare 
with nothing left at their disposal, marching off as a group of prisoners, and that's who you're relying on for your help, God would be saying? And so here, Isaiah was portraying this as an image to convey what God was going to allow to happen, that these people, and they would indeed be conquered, and they would be drawn away, as verse 4 says, that the king of Assyria would lead the way the Egyptians as prisoners and the Egyptians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, to the shame of Egypt, again, being completely exposed there. Now, let me just, to try and draw something edifying out of those few verses there, say this. First of all, by the grace of God, please don't tell me you're ever called to that ministry. Or we have certain ushers and security people here who will gladly escort you out and find you another fellowship. And sometimes I think people read passages like this and then they get really weird ideas of things they want to do as a prophet of the Lord. Well, they usually, those prophets of the Lord did. And then they look at that and they look at, you know, Jeremiah going and burying his loincloth in the mud and then wearing his muddy loincloth around. And, and look, there were times, predominantly in the Old Testament, at a dispensation of time before the grace of God and the Spirit of God, where God did tell some prophets who were foundational in bringing forth the word of the Lord on occasion to do some pretty radical things. Uh, Ezekiel laying on his side, you know, for a long period of time and every day, but God was trying to drive strong messages home. And I would just say, you know, be very, very careful to not characterize spirituality and weirdness because some people do that. And, 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 and it's a great concern to me that, that people at times have this idea when, when the Bible says that God does all things decently in order in the midst of describing the ministry of the Spirit, that people equate being you know, under the power of the Spirit or Spirit-filled or having an, an experience with the Holy Spirit with being weird. And I see none of that in the Word of God. The Spirit came upon Jesus like a dove, not a duck. Quack, quack, weirdo. That, that didn't happen. So... To equate these two together, that people act erratically and, well, the Spirit made me do this. this. No, the Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And people acting bizarre and then blaming the Holy Spirit of God, who is a God of decency and order and harmony and not drawing attention, is a real shame that happens at times among Christianity. What Isaiah is doing here is, is again, understand, I would envision that if he's anything like you or I, and he's already speaking a hard message of pronouncing things, I guarantee you, when he heard that word from the Lord, he's thinking, there is no way, God, that you just told me to do that. <laughs> are you, now, are you kidding me? I imagine if he's anything like you or I, he is wrestling with that constantly. Not to mention, remember, Isaiah's married. Remember Mrs. Isaiah? We don't get her name. She's a few chapters back. Maybe it's because she said, do not write my name in that book. If you're going to walk around and do that, do not. Do not do that. I don't know. But, but here's, I think, the thing that we should draw out of this as an application is what are we willing to do in order to remain obedient to the Lord? Imagine Isaiah getting these instructions. What are you and I willing to do if he asks us to do something? To what degree of personal cost are you willing to embrace in your life just to obey God? Because sometimes he may ask you to do something. I assure you that cost Isaiah something. 
I assure you for Isaiah, there was some risk involved in that. What amount of risk are you willing to take as a Christian to obey the Lord sometimes? When he strongly, clearly tells you to do something and you realize if I do that, there's gonna be some personal risk attached to that for my life. But are you willing to do it? Will you choose to honor the Lord and say the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts the Lord is safe? And even if it means being misunderstood, I'll obey you, Lord. Even if it means being ashamed and disgraced, I will bear the reproach of Christ because I will obey you, Lord. Even if it means that looks risky or that looks dangerous or that's gonna cost me personally, what are we willing to do? I think Isaiah portrays a great example here as well as do Ezekiel and some of the others when they're asked to do some really hard stuff from time to time on occasion. I think that's the greater thing we really draw away from this as he portrays this image. And again, for three years, it wasn't three days or three hours, a poor guy for three years. I don't know if this was a daily thing or a periodic thing, but certainly a, a hard thing to have to do that. But again, it displays his loving obedience to God and to the call of God upon his life. And that, and here's the thing, that he was a true spokesman for the Lord, that he was willing to convey God's message and that mattered to him pleasing God more than having the acceptance of other human beings. Verse five, he says, and then they shall be afraid, that is when they see this, and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. Notice, that was their expectation. Their expectation was Ethiopia will help us. Egypt will help us. We'll just make an alliance with them. They'll solve our problems for us. And the inhabitant, verse 6, of this territory will say in that day, after this goes on with Isaiah, surely such is our expectation. Now, such there is a reference to the prior verse, the Ethiopians and the Egyptians. In other words, they would be saying, surely Ethiopia and Egypt they were our expectation. In other words, uh, we thought that they would deliver us. And if, if, they're, if that's going to happen to them and we were counting on them to deliver us for our help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, he says, and how shall we escape? And that would be the message ultimately that God was trying to drive home. Don't trust Egypt. Don't think that Ethiopia is going to be the way that you're going to be able to save yourself because they have something to bring to the table that you don't. The idea is the people would be clearly getting the message if this tragic outcome is gonna to happen to Egypt and Ethiopia, and we thought that was what would preserve us, what could make us survive, what could keep us going. Hey, we just need some new ideas, some creative concepts, some new visions, some new help. Let's get some money from Egypt. Let's get some resources from Ethiopia. We can save this thing. We can save ourselves. And God says, that ship is sinking, man. You're going to turn to that. They're, they're going to be ashamed themselves, and you think they're going to save you? And this is the idea. God's saying you're putting expectations in worldly things, and the people would come to the conclusion what chance do we have of getting out of this now? We're stuck, man. And they would come to this realization of the error of relying, again, on carnal ideas or human resources and worldly plans to save themselves. Psalm 60, verse 11 and 12, let me read it to you. It's a Psalm, two verses from it, that's actually, it's repeated in Psalm 108 as well. And when something's repeated in the word of God, as I've said many times before, it's not because God couldn't think of something additional or better or new to say. God's got all knowledge. 
our Bible could be way thicker than what it is. God gave us what he gave us. So when you find something repetitiously stated in the word of God, God's trying to repeat for emphasis. Here's a verse, two verses, excuse me, that are repeated, Psalm 60 and Psalm 108, and, and it applies to what we just looked at in chapter 20. It says this, give us help from trouble for the help of man is useless. Through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he, through he, we shall tread down our enemies. What a great spiritual principle, and God reminds us of that two times. He says it in Psalm 60, he says it again in, in Psalm 108, through God, we shall do valiantly. It's through him we overcome our enemies and the things that would threaten us or, or that we have to overcome our battles. And I love that the Bible says, God, give us help for the help of man is useless. Boy, how many times have we discovered that in our lives? The help of a human being at times can prove so utterly useless. It's the help of God. And that's what God's, again, always trying to bring this back to. Rely on me. Depend upon me. Look to me. That was the mistake they were making. Chapter 21, the burden against the wilderness of the sea now, again, this is the area there that's being referenced, we know, of Babylon particularly. And, of course, we know that just specifically, if you glance over to verse 9, because God is going to say there, Babylon is fallen. So this is just an emblematic way to refer to the area, the territory, the wilderness of the sea of Babylon. So this is a word, a burden, a heavy word that Isaiah had upon him for the people of Babylon. As the whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. Now, what he's describing here ultimately is how the Assyrians, like a, a major force, a storm cloud would come blowing across, and like a, an invading storm, like a strong storm, they would come in and they would ultimately you know, come with great force. Now, what's interesting is the, the Assyrians would initially put down Babylon. Babylon ultimately then would somewhat resurrect. They would ultimately then become the next world power after Assyria. But then the Medo-Persians would come in, and like a strong wind, they would utterly put down the Babylonian Empire. So in some ways, this has both a, a partial and an ultimate fulfillment. What God is saying, again, as he's talking about Babylon, is that, and again, keep in mind, this is like some you know almost 200 years prior to these things happening that God already saw. He saw Babylon rise. He saw them try and rebel against Assyria. He saw Assyria, like a storm cloud, wipe them over in their initial attempts to come to power, and then eventually them resurging, becoming a strong power, conquering the Assyrians, and then even beyond that, God saw the next empire, the Medo-Persians, coming, and like a strong storm cloud, wiping out, and he speaks here of the destruction of Babylon, really even before the rise of Babylon. God, again, knows all things before they happen. That's why we should look to God, because <laughs> God knows what's going to happen not only 200 years from now, if the Lord tarries and we're you know, still here on the planet as human beings, God knows what's happening two years from now. He knows what's going to happen two months from now. He knows what's going to happen two weeks from now or two days from now. So that's why we should look to him, because he alone knows. And so when we're praying and trying to make decisions, Lord, you know what's going to happen two days from now, two weeks from now, two months from now. So help me make the right decisions, God, because I want to do what's going to put me in the right place to be on the right path. So here he speaks of Babylon before these things will happen. Isaiah, as he sees this, verse 2 says, a distressing vision 
is declared to me. So he was seeing the destruction, the carnage of them being conquered, and it was, it was distressing what he was seeing. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders go up, he says, O Elam, and again, remember, Elam is the area of, of Persia. He says, go up, O Elam, referring to the Persians, modern-day Iran, besiege, O Media, that would be the Medes, and the next empire would be the Medes and the Persians, who God, in a sense, would prompt, go up, the idea is to conquer Babylon, and its sighing, that is the sighing of Babylon, I have made to cease. Therefore, Isaiah says, verse 3, my loins are filled with pain. His loins, of course, referring to his midsection, where you feel it in the gut. He says, my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor, like, again, the intense birth pains uh, that a woman would be enduring through, unable to escape them, but having to deal with the severity of the pain. He says, I was distressed when I heard it, and I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart, verse 4, wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. So what Isaiah is basically you know, expressing there is how as he was seeing and hearing what God was showing him of the conquest of Babylon, it was so hard to see and it was so difficult to hear what God really, if you would, was planning as a repercussion of their rebellion against God, that when he saw the repercussions of their rebellion, as he watched it, it was so distressing, he says, when he heard it and he saw it, he said, it literally, it was making me sick in my stomach to be able to see what they were going to suffer for their pride and their rebellion. The idea is Isaiah is saying, like, it was terrifying me. And boy, uh, that to me is, is a very strong reminder that truthfully, folks, we should be terrified of what a person, what a group of people, what a nation can bring upon themselves when they rebel against God and they rebel against God's will. Isaiah was just seeing these things and hearing them in a vision, and he was saying, man, it, it was making me shake. It was making me sick in my stomach. It, it was churning me up inside as I was seeing what God had planned as the consequence of the rebellion. Again, that's why the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. Never a good thing is the outcome. Again, maybe some of us have lived it and experienced the consequence of rebelling against God. Certainly, I know we all by observation have sadly watched at times other people who've strived against and rebelled against God and the horrific repercussions they can bring against their lives. And some of us know people right now that our hearts should be sickened and grieved for and terrified about that we see rebelling against the will of God and we're thinking, where is that going to end? Ugh. What's going to be the repercussion when finally, if they don't repent, God says, now I've got to discipline. I've got to severely judge. That, that, that should truly make us burdened and concerned that we would plead for them in prayer, 
that maybe we'd be a voice of reason to speak into their life, to turn them uh, before they enter into the judgment of the Lord in an unhealthy way. He says, verse 5, prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, anoint the shield. Now, that's kind of giving an illusion. Daniel chapter 5, a story for another time, refers to how that was how the conquest of the Medo-Persian Empire took over Babylon where Belteshazzar, remember, was feeling so self-confident in his arrogance and in his you know, proud stance that he thought the city was impregnable, and he literally was having a drunken feast and using the vessels from the, you know, from the Lord's house, the gold and silver cups, to get drunk and just making a total mockery, irreverent rebellion pride, and it was in the midst of doing those things that the handwriting came on the wall from the hand, and ultimately that was the very night that the, they had been weighed in the balances, and the Medo-Persians blocked up the water and came under the gates. And I'm telling you a story I said we won't tell until later, but that's what he's describing there when he says, eat and drink, because that's what they were doing, but then the quick change, arise, get up, you princes, anoint your shields. The idea is get ready for battle. Because what happened is they weren't even realizing they were being conquered because they were completely dismissing the fact that God was going to deal with them for their wrongdoing. And they felt so secure in their arrogance. And they didn't even recognize they were literally being conquered in that same evening and anointing the shield as a way they'd put oil on the shield so that if your you know, opponent hit you with a sword or launched an arrow against you, it, would, it was kind of like oiling the shield was kind of like you ever watched... Uh, you're spiritual, you probably don't, but boxing or MMA, and they put the Vaseline on their faces so when somebody punches you, it kind of glides off the face. That's the idea of anointing the shield. So this was something you would do quickly as you were heading into battle to try and, again, defeat your enemy so that the blow they would put against you would not stick. It would kind of glance off. And God's alluding to, again, here, that they would be in the midst of partying and celebrating and a quick call to war, which ultimately wouldn't matter because they would be quickly conquered in one evening. Verse 6, For the Lord has said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And, let, uh, and he saw, he says, a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels, and he listened earnestly with great care. So this watchman is up on the watchtower, looking over, seeing if the enemy is invading. And then he cried, the watchman, a lion, my lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime, and I have sat at my post every night. And look, this is what the watchman sees. Again, Isaiah is seeing this vision of Babylon being conquered. He says, look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. So Isaiah, in the midst of seeing these things, is told here, go send a watchman on the wall. Again, this is the picture here. Again, it's, he's seeing these things of a watchman going, looking, trying to see if there's an invading enemy coming in so that he can blow the warning signal, if you would, to the people to let them know that the enemy is encroaching upon them. And this watchman sees and decries that he sees like a mighty lion, this invading force coming in with great strength, and he sees Babylon falling and being completely wiped out. Now, you may notice from verse 9 there, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Uh, that phrase should resonate because certainly that would happen historically with the Babylonian Empire, 
But remember, that same phrase ends up being quoted later on in the book of Revelation. We'll see it in chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 18. That phrase is picked up there where it's described Babylon has fallen, but there not referring to Babylon as a, a national empire, but spiritual Babylon, the, the, the one world that seems global, uh, religious system, the, the, the carnal harlot, you know, the spiritual harlot of, of Babylon, as well as the one world commercial Babylon that will exist in that day, and how God will quickly wipe that out and will cause all of that to collapse. Again, that will be happening, of course, during the time of the tribulation, where there'll be a one world religion, a one world global economic system, and that's what Babylon represents in the book of Revelation. Uh, Babylon is the, sort of this rebellion against God and setting up with her own ideas. And there, that phrase will be picked up and will be described, and it will be used there to refer to the fall of the Babylonian system, not the Babylonian empire. Now, just quickly here, notice that we have this reference described, verses 6 down through verse 9 here, of a watchman. And Isaiah was told, send the watchman out, let him do his duty, go set a watch, let the watchman do his purpose, this idea of a watchman we find picked up in Ezekiel chapter 33, and there it's further described, if you want to look at it there in Ezekiel chapter 33, where the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel telling him to go function like a watchman. And basically the role of a watchman was to go and to post themselves up a tower and to look and to pay attention, and if they saw something that was threatening, dangerous, destructive, harmful, that was coming towards God's people, they were basically to signal to the people a strong warning so that they had an opportunity to do something and to act so they weren't destroyed or harmed by the influence that was coming against them. And God told Ezekiel, listen, spiritually, I want you to function like my watchman. I want you to warn the people of God of the dangerous, destructive things that you see. As my spokesman, I want you to function as a watchman. So as you see dangerous things that could ruin, harm, devour, destroy my people, like a watchman, I want you, because you see it, to lovingly warn the people. And he said, and if you do that, and if they choose to ignore you, the blood's not on your head. Ezekiel, you did your job. You were a faithful watchman. You saw it. You saw the danger. You saw the destruction. You saw what was coming that was not good, that was harmful, that was going to come in against my people. And you, you spoke and you warned my people and, and you gave them opportunity to respond and to escape and to get out and to realize if I stay here, good things are not coming. Bad things are coming. And he says, and if the people don't listen, the blood's not on your head. It's on their head because you blew the warning signal and they disregarded the warning from God. He said, by the same token, if you don't have the courage to warn the people or you don't faithfully discharge the word of the Lord and speak as a watchman and you don't, for whatever reason, tell them what's coming, then he says, then the blood's on your head because you saw it and you knew you could warn them, but you didn't say anything. You stood silent. And look, no doubt, in a way, all of us at times are called by the Lord to be a spiritual watchman. There are times where we can see things as God's people with discernment from the Holy Spirit 
and things that are evident and clear through the word of God and the spirit of God. And God is telling us, listen, like a watchman, you need to speak up. You need to warn him. You need to warn her. You need to warn them of what is going to transpire if they don't respond, if they don't do something, if they don't act. And you need, like a watchman sometimes, to speak, whether it's to a person or to a group of people, sometimes what that warning may be. And by faithfully doing that, then it's not our responsibility what people do with it. To me, it's one of the most liberating things of, of doing you know, counseling. So many times at the end of counseling sessions, I've told you before, I'll say to people, <laughs> here's what's going to happen now. We're going to pray. You've nodded your head a bunch of times, and you've listened very graciously. And we're going to pray now. And here's what's going to happen after we pray. You know what's going to happen after we pray? And there was, you know, the deer in the headlights say, you're going to go out the door. Then you're going to do whatever you want. Because I can't put into practice for you what the Word of God says or what we talked about. That's the part you're responsible for. But to me, it's very liberating because then I can go home and put down my <laughs> head on the pillow at night and realize I can't control people. I can't live their marriage out for them. I can't, you know, turn them away from their sin. I can speak the truth to people and caution them if I see something unhealthy, but I, I, it's not on my head then. But if we don't speak the truth to people, then the responsibility is on our end because God says, you could have spoken for me. You could have spoke up. You could have spoke the truth. And, and again, what we want to do is know when God's telling us, hey, speak up here, lovingly warn, caution, indicate bring it to their attention, that we at least are faithful to do that, and then the accountability is not on us, it's on them. But God says, if you don't, then I do put it on your head because you sat silent. And in a sense, it was a sin of silence. Again, what does James 4 tell us? That if we know the good that we ought to do and we don't do it, that's sin, right? And so here, this idea of a spiritual watchman, at times it played itself out. And I believe at times God sets these situations before us in our own lives. And we want to be faithful. If we see something, look, I don't want to watch people fall. I don't want to watch people get destroyed. I don't want to watch people suffer. And so sometimes, you know, God will use us to lovingly speak into people's lives honestly out of care and concern for them. Isaiah was commissioned to do that and was doing it faithfully as well. Verse 10, oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor. Again, the picture here is like the, the threshing sledge being drawn across, separating the wheat from the chaff. He says, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. And see, there's a fitting picture of what it means, like I just mentioned, to be a watchman. Isaiah says, that which I've heard from the Lord, I declared to you. And again, Paul says in the New Testament, that which I've received from the Lord, I've delivered unto you. And look, if you communicate for God, if you teach the word of God in any capacity, that's what you and I want to be able to say. At times when God wants to use you, maybe to speak in someone's life, maybe it's a word of knowledge, the Lord reveals something to you, maybe it's a prophetic word God gives to you, maybe it's, again, a caution or a warning as a watchman to someone, that if the Lord shows you something that you should say to someone, and you know the Lord spoke, and you, hey, I want you to share this with that person, I want, that's what we want to be able to say. Look, I just... I believe the Lord has impressed this upon my heart to share with you. You share it, and you let it go. It's between them and the Lord. And Isaiah says here, that which I've heard from the Lord. He says, 
that's what I declared. I, I, this is what I heard. I'm just sharing with you what I heard from the Lord. That's our faithfulness in the midst of those things. Verse 11, the burden against Duma, which is a reference to Idumea or Edom. Duma, that's the idea there, Idumea or Edom as we know them better. He calls out to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The idea is what do you see in the night? What do you see, watchman? Twice he says. The watchman answered back, the morning comes and also the night if you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Well, that's very clear. You're saying the same thing I say all day. Again, this is a burden God gives now to the people of Edom. And again, picking up this idea of watchmen again, and he seems to be conveying this idea of how ultimately, again, the Lord's judgment because of the rebellion of the people of Edom and Idumea, would ultimately come to them. And so now the word comes forth, the inquiry, watchman, what are you seeing at night? What, what are you seeing out there at night? You're staying up at night. You're a faithful watchman. You're supposed to stay awake, stay alert, so you can see if something's coming. What do you see tonight? He asked him a second time, what do you see tonight? Pressing the issue, the watchman's response, the morning comes. In other words, you know, is, is daylight coming? Are we going to make it through the night? Is daylight coming? He says, yeah, don't worry, daylight's coming. And then he says right afterwards, but let me be honest, night's coming right afterwards. And the idea here is, you know, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Do you see any daylight? Are we going to make it till tomorrow? Yeah, we're going to make it, but here's what I can tell you. After we get through the daylight, the darkness is still coming. It's not going to be averted. And I think that's the idea here where he ultimately says, if you want to inquire, go ahead and inquire. You can return. You can come back. Feel free to come back. But I sense what the watchman is saying is, if you want to inquire again tomorrow, you can come back and you can ask me the same question, but the message is not changing. The message is going to be the same. The answer is still going to be the same. Darkness is coming, and it's unavoidable. And look, I think to some degree, like the watchman, that should be our hard attitude. Because sometimes, you know, what do people do? They'll keep asking because they want you to change the facts, or they want you to alter the truth, or they want you to say something different. <laughs> so they'll inquire, and they'll keep coming back. And, and sometimes I think there comes a point where it's like, you can ask me again tomorrow, but I'm going to tell you the same thing. The message isn't going to change. The decision isn't going to be altered. The answer is not going to be different. And, and I think in the same way, listen, you can't wear God down. You're not going to change God's word. The word of God is the word of God, and especially if we're standing upon the word of God, that doesn't ever get altered. And sometimes as the Lord's people, if we know something is truly genuinely of the Lord, then at times we can't let ourselves get worn down just because somebody keeps inquiring and coming back and trying to press the issue. Because if you haven't noticed, sometimes people will do that. If, if you haven't figured that out yet, just raise a child. No. But no. No. Come back tomorrow. No. Just that, it just, no is no, right? And if you don't learn that as a parent, you're going to have a lot of problems. That's where a lot of parents get themselves into trouble. I see too many parents who their children know that five no's or five, they know by the end of it is, he'll eventually say, yes, I'll just wear dad down or wear mom down instead of them having a backbone They'll let their kid pester them, pester them, pester them. And so Johnny just knows, all I got to do 
is make it to about five or six, and eventually I get my way. Be careful of that. That's not good. And here, the messenger, the watchman says, you can come back, he says, but I can't alter the fact that for Edom, the darkness is coming. Judgment was coming. There was nothing that could avert that. The Assyrians would come sweeping through. Historically, that happened. Verse 13, the burden against Arabia. Now, this is the area of what we know, Saudi Arabia, the burden against this particular territory in the forest of Arabia. Now, you may say there's no forest in Arabia. The idea there's more the thickets or the thorn bushes. It's translated forest here in the, the New King James anyway. In the, the thickets of Arabia, you will lodge, O you traveling companies of the Dedanites. Now, that's the, pick, the people from Dedan. You may you know, think of the idea there of, you know, of uh, Dedan, of the people of Arabia and Dedan, Saudi Arabia. And so these are the, the people that's being referred to here um, in this territory. O you traveling companies of the Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty with their bread. They met them who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword. Now, the idea here is they're trying to help the refugees because as people would be attacked, you'd have all these refugees, you know, scrambling around and they're struggling. They're, they're trying to survive to get away from the enemy, from the bent bow and from the distress of war. For thus says the Lord... Or, excuse me, thus the Lord has said to me, now this is the conclusion, Isaiah here chimes back in, verse 16, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar, that's a territory, again, referencing Saudi Arabia, the, the Dedanites, the people of Arabia, all the glory, the splendor, all the excitement, the passion, the enthusiasm, well, we're, we're going to make it. All the glory of Kedar, God says, within a year will fail. And the remainder of the number, that is the small remnant that was left, of the archers, the mighty men, and the people of Kedar will be diminished. Why? Verse 17, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. God's determined it, the idea is there. So the word here from Isaiah to the people of Arabia is, look, despite what you do, how you scramble, doing the kind things you're doing, giving a drink of water to this person, helping out that refugee, you can do all the things you want to do, but again, their ultimate destiny was that they would as well historically be conquered as a people group in that time, and the Lord gets so specific here in verse 16. Look, he, he says, this is what's going to happen. Again, this is this is the timeless God that we serve, right? That, that God's talking about something here. He talks about things way before they happen. And then he even narrows down and he literally says to him, look, your fall, the glory of Kedar is all going to fail and all the people will be diminished and driven away within a year. And then God gets purposeful by saying, according to the year of a hired man. Now, what's he saying there? When somebody was a hired man, like a hired servant, if you fell into debt, right, and you were trying to work off your debts and so you sold yourself out for slavery and you had to work a year as a hired slave or servant to get yourself out of debt and that was the arrangement that you made, okay, listen, you owe me X amount of money so you can serve me for one year and you can work off your debt. Guess what you did? You counted every single stinking day. <laughs> if you're anything like any human being, right, you're going 361 
362. I mean, you are, there's no way it's going beyond one year, right? The year of a hired servant. That hired servant was going to meticulously make sure that on that last day, he said, take your job and done, bro. It's over. Time's up. End of the game, right? And what's God saying here? God's saying, listen, I'm telling you, you can count off the days. God's saying, you can try and stretch it as far as you want. God says, you have one year. That's it. Within a year. Max, God says. Max, within a year, he says, your glory will fail and your remnants and whatever you have left in your reserves, God says, it will be diminished. The remnant would be diminished, God said. Why? Because it's something God determined. And again, what is God emphasizing? You and I cannot succeed if we try and do something against the will of God ultimately. If God's declared something, God's going to bring that to pass. And in this situation, God had determined that this particular people group and what they were doing, it was not going to last. That God was going to bring his plans with those particular group of people of Arabia, his plan was going to bring an end to them, and it was going to fade and cease in time. And no matter what they did, God said, I'm telling you, within a year, it's done. It's over. And what would have been the wisest thing for them to do if they wanted to be wise to say, you know what, then Lord, not our will, but your will be done. (laughs) That would be the wise thing. And again, How wonderful, in a sense, it is, you know, in a more positive light to recognize that when the Lord has determined things for your life, for my life, you can rest assured that God's purposes are going to be fulfilled in your life, in the timetables he wants them to be fulfilled in, and we don't have to try and force things or strive against things, but that we can just trust the Lord and realize that God even sets timetables for things, right? He doesn't just have plans for your life. He's a God who, even though he lives outside of time, he'll do things in the right time. And what does the Bible say? God makes all things beautiful in what? In his time. That's the key in his time. That's the thing we want to pay attention to. Well, let's stop there for this evening. Why don't we stand together?